Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Hello, everybody. It's Mick Sullivan, and you are listening to The Past and the Curious. This is episode 82. Hard to believe this is the 82th episode that we have released of this show, but here we are. And uh, I really have gotten into trains, mostly because I have a child who's really into trains. So I've been wanting to talk about the Transcontinental Railroad for a long time, and that is a really, really fascinating subject. We kind of focused on the railroad spike at the end, uh, had some fun with it too. Someday I'd like to make it out to California to see it in a museum. The other story in this episode has something else to do with a railroad spike, a very different railroad spike. It's not gold. Uh, may not even be a railroad spike. It's uh, kind of the stuff of legend, but the story has everything to do with music, which I love, and Hawaii. So I felt like now was a really great time to tell this story. It's an important story. It's a really interesting story. And uh, I've been wanting to tell it for a long time. So the time is now. Hope you all enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. We take you now to Promontory, Utah for the thrilling conclusion of the race to complete the Transcontinental Railroad. Well, Bob, isn't this exciting? Decades of dreams, eight years of work, thousands of people, and the race to connect the railroad lines all the way across the American continent all comes down to this. Thrilling, to say the least. It's hard to believe that it's all going to end right here. They've already pulled up the ceremonial golden and silver spikes. They've driven in three iron spikes, and just one more remains. And once that spike is in place, the Transcontinental Railroad will be finished and open for business. Bet there's going to be a lot of people who are eager to cross the continent for a fraction of the cost. You know that's right. And in much less time, too. You don't need me to tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. This is a big deal. Let's watch now to see if California Governor Leland Stanford can hammer that final iron spike into that cross tie. Hope he does, because there's an eager crowd here who came to witness history. He winds up. It's a swing. And a miss. He missed the spike. Oof, Leland. Better luck next time, pal. 
Maybe he should leave the hammering to the workers. Well, let's see if the vice president of the Union Pacific, Thomas Durant, can do any better. He takes a stance, he hoists the hammer, and... It's another big whiff! Oof, he didn't hit anything at all. It's a good thing these businessmen weren't the ones actually building the railroad, hmm? Yeah, we'd be waiting 80 years for them to finish, rather than the eight it took this dedicated team of workers. Speaking of, they've now turned the hammer over to a man with actual experience swinging a hammer and experience hitting the spike. And with one swing, he drives it in. And just like thousands of other spikes that have already been driven. Bob, do you know what we are now? What are we? Telegraph it across the country, folks. We are D-O-N-E done. In 1830, a strange-looking little locomotive engine named the Tom Thumb raced against a horse and wagon. It was the first steam locomotive in America, so excitement, along with smoke and sparks and steam, filled the air as crowds showed up to gaze upon the new creation. People were curious, excited, even afraid. There was a belief among some that when traveling at such high speeds, the human body would not be able to breathe. Even if this were true, they had little to worry about here. This, like all of the early trains, traveled pretty slowly compared to our speedy standards of today. Heck, even compared to the machines that came just a few years after Tom Thumb's first ride. Slow plodding pace or not, it was a major turning point in history. At least, it wasn't theory. The Tom Thumb lost to the horse it was racing because it broke down somewhere on the eight-mile journey. Despite the four-legged victory, everyone knew that steam power would be the future. Across the ocean in England, where they pioneered steam engine technology, this was already well known. Richard Trevethick created the first steam-powered locomotive on rails way back in 1803, and by the time Tom Thumb lost to the real American horsepower, England was already hauling passengers practically across the country. Of course, the landmass known as England is nowhere near the size of the American continent, so across the country didn't mean the same thing that it would mean in America. Within a few short years, rail lines were built all across the eastern part of the American continent. It changed travel and trade greatly. Of course, as this was happening, the Americans were moving further and further west into lands that were still rightfully occupied by America's indigenous people. And in 1850, something big happened. California has entered the chat. California wasn't new. As we've covered in other episodes, Americans had been heading west for a few years in search of fortunes in gold, blue jeans, even weird eggs to feed the ballooning population. But as soon as it became a state in 1850, there was a desire to connect it with the eastern part of the United States by way of railroad track. Thousands of miles of railroad track. Before railroad tracks, California-bound travelers would spend months and months boating the Atlantic Ocean, rounding the tip of South America, and heading up the Pacific Ocean. It took forever, and it was not fun. Others would make a punishing and dangerous crossing overland by horse-drawn wagon. In either case, it was dangerous, long, and dreadful. By the time of the American Civil War, 9,000 miles of railroad track were laid in America, 
but none of it was west of the Missouri River. So the idea of a rail line across the continent was dancing in the heads of many. Southern politicians wanted it to begin in New Orleans and run through the southern states. Northerners disagreed, as you might guess. In 1862, in the midst of the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln signed the Pacific Railroad Act to build a railroad line from Omaha, Nebraska to Sacramento, California. Two companies were soon in a race to build as many miles of track as possible. The Union Pacific Railway started in Omaha and headed west, and the Central Pacific started in Sacramento, California, heading east. And there was no agreed upon place for the two companies to meet and join their tracks. And since they were getting paid by the mile, the race was on to get as far as they could. Of course, the American Civil War dominated most of the money and people in America, so it was slow going until the war's end. Though the California-based rail got started in 1863, they spent those years moving at a snail's pace. The desert and mountains got in their way, and they also had a lack of consistent workers. When teams heading east got started in 1865, they hired many former Union soldiers, free African Americans, and hundreds and hundreds of Irish immigrants who could not find work otherwise. These workers quickly surpassed their competitors in the West with the miles of tracks that they had laid. It was really hard work, and the Central Pacific in California found some new solutions. Firstly, Alfred Nobel's new invention, dynamite, helped them blast through granite that blocked their pathway time and time again. Blowing up rock was much quicker, much louder, and probably more impressive than doing it by hand. More importantly, the Central Pacific also found a new team of workers who helped them to do the impossible. In the 1860s, thousands of Chinese immigrants came to America, some to escape wars, and others in search of fortunes for their families back home. Mostly men, these recent arrivals planned to eventually return to China, so they put great effort into maintaining the customs they carried with them from their homelands. Their traditional clothing and hairstyles made them targets for racial discrimination, but other customs and habits proved to make them great employees who would shape America profoundly. Compared to their American counterparts, the Chinese immigrants hired to work on the railroad bathed regularly, they ate simple meals, and they drank tea. In a world with poor water supply and illness running rampant, simply bathing and boiling water for tea reduced the chances of getting sick tremendously. Ultimately, 14,000 Chinese immigrants would work to help build the Transcontinental Railroad, and without them, it might not have happened. I should also point out that there is almost no record of individual workers from this period. Be it former soldiers or immigrants on the East or American and Chinese on the West, practically none of them kept any sort of journal or written record that survives. Maybe that's because the work was so hard, they didn't have time. Or perhaps it's because the work was so monotonous, so constantly repetitive, that they didn't really have much to say about it. In any case, workers flattened land, laid cross ties, carried rails, and hammered spikes all day, nearly every day. On the work went for years. Each day, mostly the same, just a few miles up the track. But in early 1869, there was a new feeling in the air. Workers building the track from the east and the ones building from the west were 
finally within miles of each other. The race was nearly done. But they hadn't agreed on a meeting point, so the president at the time, Ulysses S. Grant, demanded that they agree, otherwise he'd withhold their payment. They decided on a place in Utah known as Promontory Summit. From the starting point in Omaha, it was 1,086 miles away, and from the other starting point in Sacramento, it is 690 miles away. When you add those two numbers together, you get the full distance of the Transcontinental Railway, a very patriotic and symbolically American distance, 1776. The ceremony at Promontory Summit was followed by millions. In 1869, there was no radio, no TV, and certainly no internet. Despite this, people all across the country wanted to be a part of the celebration. So they considered the only real means of communication at the time, the telegraph. Normally, a telegraph was used to send messages across the country from point to point through electronic pulses, called Morse code. But someone had a great idea. Instead of the sounder key, what if we fix the telegraph wire to the hammer used to pound in the very last spike? That way, the entire country could hear it through connected telegraph lines. It might sound silly today, but it was the equivalent of the world watching TV to witness the first humans walking on the moon exactly 100 years later. The signal created from hammering that last spike set off celebrations all over the country. But for the lucky attendees, there was much more. A huge crowd watched as the final cross tie was laid. It was beautiful, a special piece of laurel. And to secure the rail to it, four special spikes were hammered in. These were for the ceremony. They would be immediately removed and saved because of their symbolic value. Plus, two were silver and two were gold. That last one was gold, and Leland Stanford was the man to hammer it in. And if that name sounds familiar, and you're a regular listener, he's the guy who A, founded Stanford University, and B, hired quirky photographer Edward Moybridge to take a series of really fast photos of his racehorse to see if all four of its feet were ever off of the ground at the same time when it ran. They were! Uh, so I just hit it with the hammer? Isn't gold soft? I don't want to damage it. It's a very special spike, you know. Yeah, we know. We're going to pull it out and save it. Hey, maybe someday you'll have a museum and you can put it in there. Yeah, so I don't want to dent it. Well, just tap it in. Huh? Just tap it in. Just give it a little tap. Tap, tap a Just give it a little tappy tap. Uh, okay. Not long after he gave it the tap they yanked the solid gold spike right back out and gave him back the hammer with a chance to drive in a real spike for realsies. No taps. Alth wax. Or whiffs, as it would turn out. Remember the swing and the miss from the beginning of the story? This is that. With all the spikes in, it was complete. But the organizers knew that a few silver, gold, and iron spikes weren't going to be enough to satisfy the crowd on hand. This was a railroad across the continent. To celebrate properly, they'd need to give the people a real show. And what better show for a new railroad than a pair of steam engines? Yeah, and what if we have them smooch? A steam train smooch? I love it. Well, Bob, with the spikes in place, securing the rail, America has a railroad route across the country. That's right. And both companies who spent the better part of the decade 
making this possible, have each brought a train from their starting point. The Central Pacific brought beautiful engine number 119 from Sacramento. 119 is on the tracks, staring at another train, the Union Pacific's crown jewel, the train known as the Jupiter. What do we have going on here, Bob? Is this a game of chicken? Oh, I don't think so. These trains aren't revving their engines in anger. They're doing it in friendship. And slowly they're moving towards one another. Not fast enough to do any damage, but maybe just enough to... It's a kiss! A steamy, steamy steam train kiss! And there you have it, Bob. What a way to bring America together. Hi, friends. Are you looking for a storytime podcast with your littles? Something that has some great storytelling and maybe some conversation about it? Look no further. With Storytime with Philip and Mommy, my little guy Philip and I sit down every single day and read a story together. And we, of course, want you to join us. Grab your copy of the book, sit down, let's read it, and let's talk about it. We'll learn new words, we'll learn new ideas, and then we'll learn how we can use those stories in our lives. It's a lot of fun. Classics like Little Golden Books or Bernstein Bears, all the way up through the newest phenomenons like Bluey. We talk about them and we have a lot of laughs. It's a great time and we hope that you can come and join us. So please look for us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Storytime with Philip and Mommy. Thanks so much. We'll see you there. Calling all kids in the car. Brittany and Meredith here from the chart-topping Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. Are you dreading another silent car ride with the fam? We've got the cure. Three rounds of fresh trivia every single week. Movies, music, even science and Disney. We've got something for every trivia buff in the car. No more crickets chirping on those long journeys. The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast is your secret weapon for connecting and laughing with kids of all ages, teens, toddlers, adults, it doesn't matter. Spark their curiosity and challenge their brains with every episode. New episodes drop weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast and turn those car rides into epic adventures. Okay, we're back, and it's time for UF 30 Seconds, and I gotta tell you, everybody, I am so excited when I learn about something specific about where you live, and this one is awesome. My name is Kaya from Gig Harbor, Washington, and I'm gonna tell you about the Seattle Underground. On June 6, 1889, in Seattle, Washington, a glue pot set fire in the Pontus building. A worker tried to smother the flames with water and caused an explosion. This is what caused the Great Seattle Fire. Luckily, nobody died. It's possible there was one person who did, but we have no real evidence to prove this. Before the fire, there were many floods. So when they rebuilt, people built concrete walls on the sides of the streets and filled in the streets, raising Seattle up. Second floors became first floors, and first floors became basements. The lower sidewalks in between the raised streets are now the Seattle Underground. You can take a tour of the Underground if you visit Seattle. Kaya, that was awesome. And I want to see the Seattle Underground. That sounds super, super awesome. The first floors are now the basements. The second floors are now the first floors. How fascinating. And what a what a unique solution. Thank you so much. You did a fantastic job. I learned a lot. And I think other people did too. Speaking of other people, if you have a you have 30 seconds and you want to send it in to me, that's easy to do. You can just record it with a device like a smartphone or an iPad or something like that. Uh, voice memos works great and you can email it to 
hello at thepastandthecurious.com. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. And just like that, it is quiz time once again. So, here's your first question. What is the farthest distance a single person has traveled by train in 24 hours? Now, you don't have to get it exact because how are you possibly going to do that? But let's say if you get within 500 miles or 800 kilometers, consider yourself a winner. In 2021, a Chinese man named Yang Yongdan traveled 5,412 kilometers or 3,363 miles. He chose his route very carefully to avoid long layovers, and he also prioritized long straight shot distances and particularly fast moving trains. Smart man. Question number two. The single longest train ride in the world, one where you don't have to get off of one train or onto another, just stay on the same train the whole time, it is 5,722 miles or 9,208 kilometers. What country is it in? We are, of course, talking about the Trans-Siberian Railway in Russia. It starts in Moscow and will wind up in Vladivostok seven days later. And trains leave every two days, so you can take the journey whenever you feel like it. Okay, and here is the third and final question. Where is the fastest train in the world? Oh, it's in Shanghai, China, and it's actually a maglev train, which is short for magnetic levitation. That means the train doesn't actually make regular contact with the rails, but uses magnets to levitate around them. No friction for extra speed. This thing has topped out at 483 kilometers per hour or 300 miles per hour. Whoa, that's fast. Over the years, a lot of people have found themselves walking along railroad tracks. The stone ballast, the wooden cross ties, and of course, the steel rails. There's something curious, wondrous, and even magical about a pair of glistening rails that heads off to points unknown, or known. It's pretty powerful either way. Now, to be perfectly clear, being near train tracks can be extremely dangerous. It is my recommendation that you keep your distance at all times. But if you've ever been near them, you might have a sense of what I'm talking about. And lucky for Hawaii, and the world at large, a boy named Joseph Kekuku was walking alongside some tracks in 1889. And on one particular walk, one random railroad spike may have inspired this teenager to invent a new way of playing music that we still hear today. Joseph Kekuku was born in 1874 in the Free and Independent Republic of Hawaii in the village of Laie on the island of Oahu. And at this time, Joseph and his native fellow Hawaiians, people indigenous to the land, were losing many of their traditions. Hula dancing, surfing, and something very important to Joseph, traditional music, were being stifled by new people 
with new power. Hawaii was not an American state at this time. The group of islands in the Pacific Ocean had been a unified kingdom since 1810, ruled by native Hawaiians. But around the time of Joseph's youth, things were changing. America saw the Hawaiian islands as a strategic port in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and they also found that the climate was great for sugar and fruit plantations. This brought people in search of money. It also brought missionaries to the mainland who sought to introduce native Hawaiians to their religions. Joseph's part of Oahu was soon home to Mormon missionaries who had arrived from Utah. The Mormon missionaries were unique among other missionaries in that, for the most part, they didn't try to stop Hawaiians from enjoying their native traditions, which only seems fair now since, you know, they were there first and it was their culture in their own land, their own traditions. But history is filled with examples of some people trying to change other people in lands that are not theirs. While his Hawaii was changing around him, Joseph Kekuku was fortunate to surround himself in one tradition that mattered most to him, playing guitar. Years before Joseph walked the earth, much less along a railroad track, a Hawaiian king found himself with a cow problem. Not many people in 19th century Hawaii had much experience with cows. So when the king had cattle brought to the island, he found himself in need of experts to tend to the newly arrived animals. To solve this problem, he hired Portuguese vaqueros, cowboys with plenty of bovine experience. And many of these Portuguese vaqueros brought guitars and smaller instruments similar to ukuleles to entertain themselves and others. And this would be a big deal. Native Hawaiians, who were rich in musical melodies for celebration and worship and passing time, began to adapt their music to the new portable string instruments. And before long, the instruments felt like they were a part of a tradition that had just always been in Hawaii. A guitar became Joseph's companion, at home, between chores, and at boarding school. You see, Joseph's parents were converted to Mormonism by the missionaries, and when he was barely a teenager, his parents left the island for Utah. Joseph and his guitar stayed behind. Actually, they wound up at the Kamehameha School for Boys, a boarding school that offered academics and industrial training. There, he met other students with similar interests in music. His moment of discovery that changed music forever happened at this time. He was still young, probably 15 when it happened. And it's hard to say for sure how it actually went down. The most common story is one of Kekuku walking along the track with his guitar and noticing a railroad spike. Or, in other stories, just a random bolt. And for some reason, he was struck enough to stop and pick it up. And he found that when he held it against the strings of his guitar, it made an unusual sound. Another story still says that the fateful moment happened in his dorm room when a metal comb fell out of his pocket and landed on the strings of his guitar, making a similar sound. Typically, you play guitar by holding it on your lap with the strings and the sound hole facing the audience. Notes are changed by pressing a string with your finger down to a fret that shortens the string and creates a definite and different pitch. But Joseph Kekuku laid his guitar flat on his lap 
with the strings and the sound hole facing up at his own face. And when he used a comb or a bolt or a railroad spike against the strings instead of his finger and the fret, it had a strange new sound. Like the human voice, it could move smoothly up and down. Joseph decided there was something to it, and he spent years developing a new technique. He actually modified his guitar, making the strings higher so that there was no way that they would touch the fretboard. And he used the machine shop at school to replace the bolt, or comb, or railroad spike, with a smooth round metal bar, and it would be called a steel. The traditional term for this style in the Hawaiian language is kikakila. Soon, beyond the islands, the altered style of instrument would be called steel guitar, or Hawaiian guitar. His classmates loved it, and they were quickly inspired to try out his unique approach to playing guitar for themselves. And when school let out, they went back to their homes in different towns and even different islands where they showed it to other people. Everyone became enamored with Joseph Kekuku's new way to play guitar. And before long, the sliding, swooping, satisfying sound of steel guitar could be heard nearly everywhere. In 1893, Hawaii changed forever. Queen Liliuokalani, the monarch of the Hawaiian kingdom, was overthrown by a group of American business leaders and the island was annexed by the United States of America. Quickly, Hawaiian traditions were in even greater danger of disappearing, and many natives feared for their livelihoods, their cultural identity, and the freedom to do as they pleased. So many left, often bound for the west coast of the United States. And with them, they took their instruments, songs, and dance. Then a peculiar thing happened largely thanks to a touring stage musical set in Hawaii called Birds of Paradise, a fascination with the music of the islands took root in America and beyond. At the San Francisco World's Fair, there would be Hawaiian musicians performing nearly all day, every day. And when more and more people started buying record players for their homes, Hawaiian music recordings outsold every other genre of music, and almost all of those records featured steel guitar. Joseph Kekuku himself came to the American continent in 1904, and after settling in Seattle, he, like many others, offered steel guitar lessons. Catalog companies sold instruments, and even door-to-door -door salesmen would sell steel guitars to families and then offer a few lessons before they headed off to another town. Steel guitar became such a common instrument that the very first electric guitars ever made were not regular guitars, they were steel guitars, meant to be played the way that Joseph Kekuku had developed and shared with the world. There was no way that he could have ever seen that coming. And he got pretty famous. During his time in Seattle, a newspaper called him the world's greatest solo guitarist, and most knew him as the originator of the style. He lived and made music in Chicago, the New York area, even overseas in England, and everywhere he went, his approach to guitar had already been heard and loved. The steel guitar was a sensation that always traveled ahead of him, thereby making him even more fascinating in the eyes and ears of music lovers when they finally got to hear him play in person. Music has a way of inspiring new things and blending different styles. Many of the first Hawaiian guitarists 
toured in vaudeville shows, which were variety acts that blended comedy and music and acting and dance and acrobatics all on stage. After the shows, the hodgepodge of performers would often find themselves in boarding houses together. Hawaiian musicians would mingle with African-American musicians surrounded by entertainers from all over the globe. This led to a major development in American music. Most people believe that Joseph Kekuku's style of guitar was first seen and heard by many of the early blues guitarists. It's likely that this inspired many of these musicians to play in a similar way, though adapted for the music that they traditionally performed. But the most famous impact steel guitar made was on country music. Starting with Jimmy Rogers and continuing with nearly every single country artist since, and even Taylor Swift, the steel guitar has been a crucial part of the music. Because of its unique, human-like sounds, steel guitar became a fundamental building block of that style of music. That's another thing that Joseph could have never imagined. And on the flip side, it's likely most country artists today have no idea that the sound listeners think of as imminently country music was actually invented by a 15-year-old in Hawaii. Today, the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville, Tennessee honors dozens of steel guitar players. Not included on that list, however, is Joseph Kekuku. You know, the guy who only invented steel guitar. He lived until the 1930s, well long enough to see that his new guitar found a permanent place in music. But when you really think about it, a lot of things had to happen for Joseph to get to that point. From those vaqueros bringing guitars to Hawaii before he was born, to his parents enrolling him in a boarding school, him randomly dropping a bolt or a comb or a railroad tie on his guitar, to him spending years of work developing a new sound that he could share, and then to Hawaiians fleeing their homeland in order to preserve their traditions, which is really weird when you think about it. All of this led to a new instrument becoming so popular that you can go hear it on the radio right now. It's just more proof that everything is connected, and people, just regular people, influence all kinds of change. And Joseph Kekuku is one of many Hawaiians who changed the world. Thank you all for listening to this episode. I really, really enjoyed working on the music for this episode. Um, it's all me uh, from the beginning to the end. Uh, and this one was really great. I put a lot of effort into it and it was super fun to do. Um, so uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I have some Patreon people that I need to thank right now. Uh, uh, these are really exciting ones too uh, because Rosie, uh hello to you, Rozzy. Um, thank you for listening and supporting. Um, and I heard that you read the meat shower for your class and it was a big hit, which uh, makes me really happy. So thank you very much. I, I'm glad you did that and I'm glad you got to share that. And I'm glad I get to share this show with you, buddy. Uh, and another one that's super awesome, Lucas McAllister from right here in Kentucky. Hey, Lucas, uh, so glad. I don't, I don't know that I've had the chance to meet you, but I hope I do someday. I know you're not far. Uh, thank you for listening. I'm so glad that you enjoy as well. 
And that goes for everybody out there. Uh, Patreon really helps me keep it going. Um, they're ad-free versions of these episodes now uh, on, on Patreon. Uh, but also, it really... I, that's how I keep the lights on, y'all. Uh, so thank you all so much, and um, I'll be back. I'll be back. I always am. You know it. You know it's true. So we'll talk to you soon. I hope you have a great September. All right, let's rock. Thanks, everybody. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.